In this episode of So Dramatic, my guest is artist and educator Sandy Washington. Sandy and I talk about abstract expressionist artist Mark Rothko, most famous for his rectangles of deep color. Sandy and I discuss why sometimes artists are most creative when they have a deadline, why it's okay to let your kids touch the art sometimes, and not to hang her paintings in your bathroom. Sandy Washington, mm-hmm. you are my guest, and I'm so excited. I'm so happy to be here. Oh my here. gosh, because you, like when I thought about doing this podcast, you were one of the first people, I'm like, I have to have Sandy on this, oh, thank you. because you're an artist, because you're such a creative person, and I I, I know what you're capable of, I know what you do, I know um, your aesthetic, and I just, you and I love talking about like your teaching yeah. and ideas, and I thought this would be something that, you know, you would that you would enjoy and I hope you enjoy it. I am. I'm excited. I'm excited. I was a little anxious today. I was you, like, yeah. I'm not very good. Like I didn't want you to throw a name out and be, be I don't know anything about well, that that's, person. That's fine. You're not supposed <laughs> you don't need to. Okay. And so the way this works is I basically choose a person who I know will come and sit in my basement mm-hmm. in my studio. Yep. And then I think who would be a cool person to talk with that person about. So you don't need to know anything. Mm-hmm. This is just a conversation. This is just uh, you know, for me to share this with you, but things are going to come up that you're going to know and want to comment on mm-hmm. because that's that's you. Yeah. That's how you are. So, did you think well, at all you. about who I might be talking with you about? Did you have any ideas or thoughts that before you came here? Well, I thought about Georgia O'Keeffe. Okay, because of my big painting yes. that's in my dining yes. room. So I did think of that, um, but then I didn't know if we'd be talking about a specific person right. or a style okay. because I love. And I think from teaching so many years, I love all kinds of art and making all yes. kinds of art. Yeah. So like when someone will say to me, do you like oil paint? Do you like, what's your favorite medium? I, I don't have one. Right. I just love, and I think that is from teaching, yeah. especially elementary school for yeah. so many years that you try and expose them to as many as you can. And then it made me excited about yeah. it too. Because you so. have to know how to yeah. do it too. Okay. Yeah. All right. So, good. well, I hope that you'll be excited once you hear who <laughs> Who I've chosen. Drum roll. Right. As you get up and walk out. Yeah. No, I'm not talking Outta about. Here. All right. So Sandy Washington, I have chosen Mark Rothko. Oh, a little more contemporary uh-huh. art. Yeah. All right. Okay. All right. So I basically just got to give a few of my sources because we're teachers and I okay. have to give a little bit. So New Your York credit. Times, MoMA, there was a great Mark Rothko website, um, New Yorker Magazine. There was a book about by Kathleen McGeegan and that was really good there's a book um Lee Seldes about Rothko there's a also a documentary about Rothko so I kind of go down the rabbit hole so once I start the research for me is super fun Mm -hmm. because I'll just kind of start looking 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 and then I go back and I read and then I watch documentaries and then I watch videos and then I watch and it's like I could you know I spend way too much time (laughs) find out all sorts of stuff (laughs) that's why my house is a mess (laughs) So basically, uh, Mark Rothko sought to make paintings that would bring people to tears. He said, I'm interested only in expressing basic human emotions, tragedy, ecstasy, and doom, and so on. And the fact that a lot of people break down and cry when confronted with my pictures shows that I can communicate those basic human emotions. If you are moved only by their color relationships, then you miss the point. So Rothko painted to plumb the depths of himself and the human condition. For him, art was a profound form of communication, and art making was a moral act. Hmm. Interesting. So he was born in in Latvia, September 25th, 1903. Marcus Rothkowitz. He was fourth child of Jacob and Anna Rothkowitz. And as Russian was a hostile environment for Zionist Jews, they emigrated to the United States. But his dad came first with his two older brothers, so in 1910, and then three years later, he, um, came. he came with his mom. So he didn't gain American citizenship till 1938, but he did it because there's threats of Nazism in Europe, and rumors had spread about potential deportation of American Jews, so he changed his name from Marcus Rothkowitz to Mark Rothko to appear okay. less Jewish. Mm-hmm. They settled, his family was in Portland, Oregon, but his dad died only a few months after he got here, which was really sad because then he had to start to make a living and earn some money. And um, he initially only spoke Hebrew and Russian. And so he was forced to learn English and go to work. And he really made him really bitter because he felt like he just lost his childhood. Mm -hmm. 
graduated early from high school and was awarded a scholarship to Yale University. Wow. Pretty good, yeah, right? Yeah. His initial Especially chose... Especially for not speaking right. English. Right. like, what's my problem? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> His initial course of study was um, engineering or law degree, but he found the environment at Yale conservative and exclusionary. What? Huh. <laughs> That's crazy talk. <laughs> Like yes, and <laughs> and I love that he's he ends up an artist, but he started out probably with what he felt right. He could what's, make some money. Like when I pulled out of the driveway to go to college, and my dad's like, "You're not majoring in art." <laughs> no, he did not yes, say I that. Am. Yeah, did he really? Yes. Yeah, oh, he's like, "What are you gonna do with it?" Right. <laughs> yeah, but since I was little, I wanted to be an art teacher. Yeah. So I think he yeah. was kind of just joking with you. Yeah, yeah that sounds yeah. like your dad would be silly. Yeah. Um, so he left Yale without graduating in 1923. And after Yale, he goes to New York and he said he was just going to bum around and starve. Um, over the next few years, he took odd jobs and then he started studying at this Art Students League under Max Weber, one of the only professors there who had really firsthand knowledge of European modernism. Okay. So his early paintings were oriented to social themes, um, a little expressionist as well as surrealist overtones. His subjects reflected um, Weber's influence as well as that of Manet, Cezanne, Picasso. Uh, but again, he really didn't start painting till this point. Yeah. So, you know, he's 20. Mm hmm. Around there. So his early paintings were mostly portraits, nudes, and urban scenes, which, I mean, when you think of Rothko, do you have an image in your mind when you when you hear Mark Rothko? Not those that you just no, mentioned. Right. Not at all. No. But he probably was looking to what other people were doing at the time and yeah. what was accepted. Right. Yeah. And what I love is when any of these artists I read about is the process. Mm -hmm. Like, how did you get to your iconic look? Yeah. Right. What led you there? Where? How did you start? And looking at his his paintings and what he did originally, you do have these very clear forms of people. Mm -hmm. And then the people start to become less formed, mm -hmm. like kind of exaggerated. Mm -hmm. um, less not detail to them. Yes, least detail. Mm -hmm. um, and then no people at all, abstract images. Yeah, just colors. Images. And just then the shapes. abstract image, like shapes. And then those become kind of less shaped, mm -hmm. you know. Till we get to the the rectangles, mm -hmm. and you can kind of see. And I was like, okay, that's. I love seeing the process. I mm -hmm. love seeing how it. How do you do that when no one else is really doing that in right. that way? So, which is when I said that he started out with what was accepted. Yes, and then it's yeah. so cool to see how he went through his career. Yeah, and what he needed to yeah. create. Yeah, very interesting. So, he was chosen to participate in this group show, this Opportunity Gallery, nineteen twenty eight, and it was just amazing that he, someone who had dropped out of college, who mm -hmm. only started painting three years before, was like part of this, you know, this group of painters. Um, so, nineteen thirty paintings. There's really kind of an expressionism, um, kind of these like claustrophobic urban scenes where, like subway, like you have all these people kind of bunched together mm -hmm. and just sort of this again, a lot of social themes. That's sort of what he was focused mm -hmm. on and dealing with but throughout his time his personal life was shadowed by really severe depression mm -hmm. probably hid undiagnosed bipolar or a manic depression he originally married this edith sacker she was a jewelry designer okay. and i was reading about their marriage i think they were married about seven years and he was i think he was working teaching during the day and then painting at night and she's like this is stupid you need to help me with my jewelry so she had him mm. helping her with her jewelry and he's like i don't want to make i want to go paint i want to paint yeah i don't want to like do your jewelry. Yeah. so she wasn't real supportive she's like your painting isn't selling my jewelry selling painting your paintings are bringing in nothing mm -hmm. so she was sort of like not very supportive of his artistic spirit well, so she speak. looked at it not as what he loved right. but as a job yeah yeah seriously yeah. yeah so they end up getting divorced and then he married alice marie uh be still known as mel they called her mel and he would have two children with her uh, mm -hmm. kate and christopher and what year is this right so now? this is so he divorced edith in 45 and i believe 40 around 45 was when he married Mel. Okay. And then he they had a daughter, Kate, in 1950. Okay. And then a son, Christopher, in 1963. Oh, okay. So they had a hard Big time difference. having yeah. kids. So that was, it took a while. Um, but she was, they, I read about her as well, and she was very supportive of encouraging him, being positive with him, that he can do this, that he can. And when they talk about his art during that time, those first five years they're together, they're married, his art just that's when you really see these changes yeah. Yeah. that he had the ability that he was spending money now, you know, more than he'd ever had before and to, to create something that he hadn't before. So, and was he being recognized by 
the art world at yes. that time? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, a little bit a little more, bit more each time. Yeah. yeah. So he, in the thir- mid-30s, he was in a group of New York, which is known as the Ten. So this is a group made of a group of painters doing like modernist and kind of abstract work. I didn't recognize the other names, so okay. I'm not, you might know. In my head, I was trying to think <laughs> like, of who, who it might be, that? but I, I know I yeah. don't know. I'm like, I don't know these people. You'd probably yeah. know all of them. But he once wrote to the New York Times saying he would not defend his pictures because they defend themselves. Yet he was always a really a vocal advocate for any artist, writing reviews as well as essays on the complexities of the art world. So 1939, before he married Mel, he um, stopped painting altogether and spent a whole year oh. reading mythology and philosophy and studying and um, Nietzsche's birth of tragedy, you know, really mm-hmm. getting into this this highbrow stuff. Yeah. So that was kind of when he stopped being interested in representational art. Okay. So before that, you know, we had figures, we have people, and it was sort of that reading this philosophy that he was like, I want to represent the in, the interior world mm. instead of the exterior worlds. Okay. Which means it's just going to be paintings we don't understand. Right. Emotions and <laughs> all that stuff. Just color and well, shapes. And you, wonder, and, and you wonder, too, like, if he was happier when he was married to the second to Mel. Yeah. Um, how that influenced his colors and his designs yeah. and things like that. Yeah. Because you'd think it would. Yeah. I mm-hmm. would I would think so, too. During that hiatus, they believe he wrote this uh, this book called The Artist's Reality. Okay. And it was never published during his lifetime. He kind of hid it away in this envelope, said miscellaneous papers. And his son, Christopher, found it. After he was gone? After he was gone. Oh, my And goodness. then he's like, Christopher's like, I I should publish this. And did he? He did. And I, I've never and he's read like, that. I should edit it and publish it. He's like, I didn't want to edit my dad's work because he's like, I thought, he's like, but I, I got sucked into it and I did it and I felt that it was important. Um, so this was all his ideas about modern art, about myth, about beauty, the nature of American art, challenges of being an artist in society. So mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know if it would be like a book you'd read to help you go to sleep or right. if it would be a book. <laughs> to inspire. I'm thinking the first. <laughs> um, so as far as his personality, he really came across as like darkly comic Cranky, arrogant, angry, self-doubting. Is that why you picked him? <laughs> he reminded me of you. You're like, wow. That's this brings Sandy. me to. <laughs> That's Sandy. Um, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. No, the brilliant was probably what led me to that. Um, he can be super gregarious and social at times, but then there, he had this tendency to be, you know, kind of this cranky guy. So in the 40s, he began to be influenced by surrealism and abandoned expressionism. So for this more abstract, like symbols and um, mm-hmm. plant and animal forms and, you know, these things that he felt, these archaic symbols would somehow unlock something and transmit emotions to the viewer. Mm -hmm. There'd be something that would happen. He felt like we as mankind were locked in this mythic struggle, this free will in nature, and this somehow these symbols might unlock something for us. And and how cool that it would affect each person looking at it differently. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And whatever that is, right? Whatever you need. So the late 40s... In the early 1950s, Mark Rothko created some of the pieces which he is most well known for in his career. The paintings um, which he put out during that period showcased the large and dark brush strokes, mm-hmm. large blocks of color that were used as paintings. A variety of washes were also used in the art form which he created during these years. These really large and contemplative those are the ones art. that I know. Those are the ones yeah. that you'd be familiar with. That we kind of refer to them as like the rectangles, yeah. right? Yeah. So no figures at all. None. Figures are completely banished. He doesn't mm-hmm. use them at all. And they're dominated by like kind of these soft edge blocks of color which seem to float in space and one of the books i read by his son was like don't ever use the word stacked when you're referring to my father's paintings those try those rectangles are not stacked they're floating stacked yes float they're afloat or they're floating Mm. stacked is static stacked is is limiting float gives it some a a different dimension Mm mm-hmm but the, ve- the word stack was like a forward. dirty word. Isn't that interesting? That is interesting. And what what do you, yeah. I mean, what is the, like to say afloat or stack? I mean, when you look at them, I, I don't know. I was just thought, well, stack, well why I'm, is stack a dirty word? Right. Because it's not going anywhere because it's not. And I guess with the floating, you'd have to be able to see some sort of um, shadow, some sort of okay. more, um, well, maybe because he wanted people to think so much about it. He wanted it to be more dimensional. Right. So stacked, like you had said, seems like, well, also it was maybe like put there and left. Mm-hmm. Whereas floating, 
there still was potential. There's, it yeah. was still moving. We didn't know where they would be going. And um, to each person, they could come to their own conclusion mm-hmm. of why they were floating, where mm-hmm. they were floating to. Whereas mm-hmm. if they were just stacked, it, you'd walk by and be like, oh, it's, that's done. Mm-hmm. There's n- no movement to mm-hmm. it. And I don't mean movement in the physical. I mean movement like where is this painting going? Like, right. You know what I yeah. mean? Yeah. And so, a depth to it where when you see, I, I was looking at other paintings from that time that had a similar feel, that had mm-hmm. the had rectangles and had squares and had, and they were very hard edged. Oh, and his his were not. His they are were not. Real, yeah. They're very soft. And I thought, okay, that makes a difference as well. And again, mm-hmm. these choices that they're making, right? Right. The hard edge was just, a, you get a different feeling from it. You don't realize that you mm-hmm. do. But like you said, it's done. It's there. It's flat. Mm-hmm. There's not a lot of, yeah. you know movement to it and i think it's so interesting to talk about modern art because Mm -hmm. so many people just dismiss it i don't understand that or my favorite is when i could do that why is that right famous um but when you talk about the fact that yes we can draw rectangles and shapes um but the fact that he consciously made the effort to make those look floating Mm -hmm. or that he like soften those edges it's there was meaning and purpose to it yeah. where a lot of people are like well i can draw rectangles well right and you can Whereas do it now more... because he did it first right exactly right right it's sure true. i can do any i can do a jackson pollock yeah. i can do whatever yeah um but you weren't the one that came didn't up with do it. it and you didn't do it at a time where no one else was doing it like right. that right yeah we can copy we can copy people it's right. the originality yeah that that interests me. And those rectangles didn't take a day to paint. No. They were months and months and months of layering mm-hmm. and yeah. layering and getting the and right. And like you said, in the wash that went yeah. over it. Yeah. And that also I would help to make it look softer and, right. and floating when they use the artistic media yeah. in different ways. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Very cool. So, again, he his point was to remove all obstacles between the painter and the viewer. And so this, he just kind of wanted just to have this color to kind of envelop you, right? You're sort mm-hmm. of kind of pulled into this. Um, they they refer to these these pieces as his sectionals. They're usually he would okay. paint, you know, a few of them or a group of them at one time. But he just felt like they were not self-expressions, but statements of the condition of man. Mm. And so each person would have a, a reaction mm-hmm. to this. Well, I uh, think sometimes artists, too, think that their viewers are dumb. Like they want to put everything out there for them to see the yeah. entire story or the entire thought whereas like if I'm drawing something or painting something and I tell my students this too if you're drawing a a plant you don't have to have the whole plant pictured right centered in the canvas or the paper our audiences are smart enough that they can come to their own conclusion that the plant that's going off the side of your paper continues right or that you know what he is drawing it is up to us to we're smart people Uh and and um just that they can stop and look at a painting and be like, oh, this is the feeling or the emotion that I get and not necessarily what he felt while he was painting. Mm-hmm. But it's cool that he was so interested in that he wanted other people to come up with their own thoughts and their mm-hmm. own conclusions to it. Yeah. I think that's cool. So late 50s, he started to use much darker colors in his art, darker hues, richer textures. And that really became a focal point. He was super disciplined. He would work mm-hmm. every day, nine to six, regular hours every Which day. Which is not normal for no. artsy people. <laughs> when, when do you find you're the most creative? Like when for you? Um, when I have a deadline. <laughs> When someone says, in fact, my girls laugh at me and they'll like, they'll hear me on the phone and be like, oh, of course, you could come tomorrow and pick up your artwork. And they'll look at me and they go, did you start it yet? I'm like, no. <laughs> yet. Um, no, I I am. Well, I feel like I've changed. When the girls were younger, I was much more creative real early. Yeah. I, was a, okay. I got up early and I was ready to go. Yeah. Um, do you feel like because at the end of the day you knew you'd be exhausted? Yeah. So you needed the best time of the day to. Yeah. And then when they went down, I was like, okay, I can yes. relax. Yeah. And I want to paint then. Right, right, right. I wanted to get up and do it in the morning yeah. with my coffee and without, you know. Yeah. When before. you're fresh. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So. Well, that's funny. Um, so, and now I. Um, Are you working on any projects right now? Anything that you're doing? Um, no, not right no. now. No. You know, at the beginning of the school it's... year. Oh, yeah. I'm like, Yeah. No, yeah, I don't really have, I don't really have any, well, <laughs> my kitchen, I, I painted a wall yesterday. And while I was painting the wall yesterday, I, I said to my sister who was there helping, I'm like, I hate painting walls. 
She's like, you do? I thought you would like it. I'm like, no. No. Ugh. No. No, not at all. No. No. I mean, I'm so happy now. It's beautiful. Right. If you were doing but a mural on your exactly. walk, that would be great. Yeah. Right now, I was like, ugh. But, but like picking out the colors, I'm sure that was fun for you. It was. And that process and picking out the finishes of 15 yeah. different colors Gosh. on the side uh-huh. of our dining I room. I believe it. Because I would come home with another one. Yeah. And we'd sit at dinner and be like, I don't know. Do you like that one? Do you yes. like that one? And we'd different lights, different times uh-huh. of day. And it does. Oh, I, yeah. I would get a piece of um, poster board. Sure. And paint a bunch and then move them around the room. Yeah. At different times of day and see which one. Which one you like. Struck me. Because mm-hmm. I'm not doing this again. No. That's what we said. Oh. Nope. It's the worst. Mm-mm. It yeah. is the worst. <laughs> and you see people like those um, home improvement shows like, oh, yeah. so we, we, this morning we painted the room. I'm like, no, that's three days. Yeah. That's not this morning. Yeah. That's three. Well, we had five of us and it, uh, it literally was the whole day. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. awesome. It's yeah. awful. Um, okay. So his social revolutionary ideas throughout his life, he um, supported artists' total freedom and expression. He felt it was compromised by the market. I have a question real yeah, quick. Go and ahead. my brain's going to forget it. No, go ahead. You had just said just before that he changed his colors. Was there something in his life? Like, was everything good with his wife? Was everything? It seems so, like so often when they're right, they like, didn't really comment why, but. He does, you know, he does suffer from severe depression. Mm-hmm. He and his wife eventually did separate. Oh, okay. Um, so who knows? I mean, towards yeah. the end of his life, it was black, black and yeah. gray. Yeah. So you yeah. see this progression from, you know, or mm-hmm. he just wanted more, something more intense. What, what he was doing before wasn't mm-hmm. as as deep or as intense mm-hmm. enough. But yeah, they didn't really, you know, say something personally. But okay. when you kind of look at what was happening, if there's got to be some. Yeah. Connection. When again, he's giving his audience another emotion to kind of find within themselves. So yeah. he was doing these bright colors and then he was like, all right, I've done, yeah. I've done those. And you like you were maybe... saying too about letting you, leaving that open to interpretation. Mm-hmm. His son was saying people, someone would like contact him and go, yeah, oh, I want a, a copy of Untitled for 1962. He's <laughs> like, okay, there's 150 Untitled. <laughs> That's funny. He didn't title them. Yeah. Well, again, because once you read that little box, you that limit what card. it can be. Yeah. That was Pollock, too. Pollock stopped name. He stopped. He'd number them. Yeah. Um, he stopped giving them names because he didn't want to give anyone, lead them down a path that well, they right had away, to see it, it that way. Yeah. Right away, it gives your viewer your opinion. Yeah. You know? Well, I think about, too, I don't know if you ever went to the Art Institute. I, I told a story in an earlier podcast where there was white canvases mm-hmm. in the modern wing. I went with the kids when they were mm-hmm. younger. We walk in and they go, what? I could have done that. Mm-hmm. I go, yeah, but you didn't. Yeah. This guy did it first. Yeah. Now, of course, we can do it. But the the, interp- the the purpose of that was once you put paint on it, you limit what it can be. Yeah. So by having nothing and having a white canvas, it, it can that be whatever his, you want. That yeah. was his. We went um, this summer, a group of my girlfriends, and um, we went down to the, we spent a lot of time in the modern wing. Mm-hmm. And there was one um, that had three different canvases that were attached together. Mm -hmm. The top one was um, blue. The middle one was red and the bottom one was green. And I just thought it was, it was pretty. It was nice. Uh It it made me happy. I just, I was drawn to it. And then I looked at it for a little bit and, you know, just tried to think, I wonder why those colors. And I looked at the, the little card, the placard, and it said that it was, he traveled across Europe that summer. (laughs) The train went so fast. Those were the colors he saw. I just thought that was right. very funny. Uh-huh. I'm like, that's, yeah. yeah. So then I wanted to, in my dining room where I had all those squares, okay. I'm thinking I want to do something with canvases of like the, the poor colors that didn't make the cut. <laughs> and do, <laughs> do, do like, I don't know, some sort of painting okay. with, it hasn't come uh, yeah. yet, but I just yeah. thought that'd be kind of funny. Oh, like so y'all funny. didn't make yeah. it, but yeah. I'm going to put you up here. here. It's all good. You're not a feature. Right. Um, <laughs> That's really interesting. So when you, if you go to the Art Institute, do you prefer to go to the Modern Wing or do you have other places that you like to go to? I do you kind of have your, your spots that you like to? I definitely have favorites. Yeah. Yeah. Favorite spots I like to go. And yeah. I also have parts that I don't, uh-huh. I don't love. Um, right. But we, there were six of us that went, I call it the OG squad, the okay. original, <laughs> the original girls. Um, and we went and just walked around and they were, they were very fun that sounds like a weird word mm-hmm. to me. They were like, Sandy, what do you think of this? Or like, mm-hmm. I would stop and, you know, we would look right. at a painting and we would just talk about them. And it was just fun to go with them. Right. Yeah. yeah. And th- there is one painting there that I always have to go look at. And I did not find it this last time I was there. And it just, it's a black canvas and it just has a date, October 31, 
I don't even remember the year. Okay. But I have Googled it over and over again, trying huh. to find out what yeah. the significance of that date. And again, the placard doesn't give you any. Right. Yeah. So it must just be significant maybe to the artist. Yeah. Or... And I love yeah. getting the headphones for that very reason yes. because, and now you don't even have to have headphones. You can listen on your phone. Mm-hmm. You can download an app. Yeah. But I want to know. Like, I otherwise I'm going to walk right past this. Oh, yeah. And I don't know. I don't know if I talked about this in an earlier episode or not, but one time we went with the kids and there was a pile of candy. <laughs> In the corner. Do you remember I think that? I was with you. I am not kidding you. Were you with and, us and with the kids? And they, they went, went to go, to go grab get it. And we said no. Yeah. And then the woman standing there was like, no, no. No, I was that was a different time. I wasn't oh, with okay. you. Because she no one told us we could. Okay. So, we were there okay. and they said, No, it's part of it. It's uh-huh. a part of like a um you help to create the art by taking yes. away and then they add. So which was interesting. I researched that because okay. later on I'm like, what was that? Maybe my lady in the room I was in she was, was supposed just crazy. To tell you. No, she was. You were supposed to take it. You were supposed to take candy. But oh. I'm there with my kids. I'm like, you don't touch anything in the art yeah. institute, yeah. right? And they're like, mom, it's a pile of candy. So it <laughs> was the artist was. Um, it was representational of his mm-hmm. lover who was dying of AIDS. He was 182 oh. pounds, and he put. 182 pounds of candy in the corner. Oh, my god! And you, as people took it, it was the symbolic of his wasting away. Oh, my goodness. So however long that took, it was just, it was a representation of that. And I thought, okay, that's not what I, that's not even what I would have thought that would be yeah. about. But that was just a really cool reminder to me to ask, to look it up, to find mm-hmm. out. Um, yeah, yeah, we just ate the candy and laughed. That was pretty <laughs> crappy. I should have got over and looked it up. <laughs> I was like, hmm, candy. Oh, candy. Let's go, Love girls. Because I, I don't wow. hang out at the Modern Wing very often. Yeah. But when I do, I enjoy it. I'm not, I think, too, I, I always want to look for things that I want to hang on my wall. And I don't, there's not many things yeah, there that, that I want. Like to. But I'm like, I got to go. I got to see the Warhols. I got to yeah. see, you know, Cindy Sherman. I got to mm-hmm. see um, the, the Dollies. And, yeah. you know, I just, just have to kind of like see that. But the, most of the stuff I'm like, mm, no, yeah, doesn't do it for me. Walk right by. Yeah. One of my favorites there is um, David Hockney. Um, it is, I don't, uh, American something, I think it's called. But it is a, it's a portrait of a man and a woman with their home behind them. And then off in the corner is a totem pole very odd is it a photo or is it a painting painting. and in the middle of the two of them there's a very heavy sculpture that's a big rock she is like holding her robe closed he's standing staring at her and his right arm is melting his hand is melting like dripping down and so i just love to look at that one and we stood there for probably a half hour because just talked about like why do you think what happened? Mm-hmm. There's like shadows on the one side that are jagged and the other side, it's really bright. And we're like, hey, why is she like holding, leaning away from him? And right. why is he so mad? Right. And her face like mirrors one of the faces on the totem pole. Okay. And it's oh, just, gosh. there's a lot to so unpack. Cool. Yeah. Wow. I love okay, looking I'm at that one. That out next time and that I was go. one that we did when um, I took my sixth graders down there and I would have them write what just happened. Okay. Write Ooh, a paragraph of yeah. what happened, and then he painted this picture. Oh, my gosh. So, yeah, it's a good one. You'll have to okay. check it out next yeah. time. Or call the, me. I'll go in. Yeah. There's going to be a Warhol exhibit coming up soon. Oh, nice. Yeah, big one. Nice. So I'd like oh, to go see that. That would be fun. That. Yeah. yeah we got to do that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> That's all right. Tangents are, are what this is all about. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, so this is what I find very interesting. So he belonged to this generation of artists who spent long periods in obscurity and poverty before they were discovered by critics, right? Mm-hmm. So at which point then their prices raise, you know, mm-hmm. raised and they get they make money. And so that he had a hard time accepting his wealth. He was just kind of mm. uncomfortable with it. He had a hard time like kind of going from he's this social kind of activist and right. social reform and um now it's like now he's kind of everything he's been against. I or was been, just gonna say, yeah. yeah. But like this friend said he paid for everything in cash. Everything was in cash. Huh. And if he had to ever go to the bank, he'd be like depressed for days. <laughs> Because he didn't want to go to a bank? He didn't want to go to the bank, didn't want to take money out of his account. Like, he just didn't like spending money. Um, he was worried that money was going to distract him. Oh, interesting. From his success. And this kind of made me think about Banksy mm-hmm. and his sort of approach to his art. And it's not like about making money and, you know what I mean? Right. Um, right. And just that recent incident where that painting sold. Yeah, for a lot. Yeah. And then it went through it shredded immediately after after 
Oh my gosh. Remember that? I can't, it was even, the girl with the I balloon. can't even imagine. Yeah. 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 So I just thought, you know, that's an interesting character too. And I always try to find like stuff about Banksy and he's just someone who fascinates me and uh, his just kind of approach where he's like, I, this is not about marketing about myself and um, kind of a, you know, his more of a comment on society based on how they're reacting to what he's doing. Interesting. Um, yeah. So I, I'm a fan of, of his as well. So. So acclaim never seemed to soothe Rothko's spirit. He came to be known as abrasive, combative character. He was given a Guggenheim Foundation Award, and he refused mm. it, saying that art should not be competitive. Interesting. So he's determined to think of himself as an outsider, even as the riches and praise are heaped at his doorstep. Well, and what's interesting about that is a lot of artists really just, um, like if I paint something that I'm really excited about, I, I love when people say, I liked that, or I liked your whatever right, you did. Right, and, and there's got to be some level that he wants people to like what he's doing. Right, why else give it? Why else put it out there? Right, right. But to say that, I mean, everyone likes a, a accolade. Yeah, you know. Yeah, and and you wonder if that was just part of his persona, or even part of his 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 disease, his ailments, okay. or if he just wasn't able to. And again, to go from like joy. the starving hours, and what I think is interesting too is, you know, he initially, you know, he's the one who's kind of like against the old guard when he first comes mm -hmm. out, right? Well, we're doing things differently now, and this Cubist movement, we're we're not like mm -hmm. you guys, and we're going to do things differently, and the old school needs to get out of the way and let the, us new people come in. Mm -hmm. Well, then along comes Andy Warhol, mm. and he's like, "What the hell <laughs> is this?" Yeah, and Andy Warhol's saying the same thing: "Get out of the way, old man." Yeah. Now you're the the guard yep. and we're stepping in and you don't like it. Well, of course you don't like it cuz it's, it's different. It's not what you yeah. did. So that was really difficult for him. He had a really hard time that with that becoming that which is the, funny. The, being the establishment. But what's funny about that he was hard he had a hard time that someone else was coming up, but yet that kind of contradicts the Absolutely. fact that he didn't want anyone to Yeah. Yeah. It totally does, yeah. right? That's funny. Yeah. So he would often stand up for his beliefs, and actually it would cost him dearly sometimes. So he refused a 1953 offer by the Whitney to purchase two of his paintings because of a deep sense of responsibility for the life my pictures will lead out in the world. He didn't want them to be there. Another pivotal project, That's which would end unhappily, was a series of murals he completed for the Seagram building. This hmm. is kind of a famous story. 1958. Initially, okay. the idea of incorporating his work into this architectural environment appealed to him. So the Seagram building, they're um, designing a new, like... Um, and that was in New York, That was right? in New York. Okay. Yeah. So new lobby. Four Seasons has a restaurant there. He nice. was asked to complete these series of these murals, these paintings. So he spends two years making these wow. three series of paintings for this building. Didn't really like the first two sets, so then he tried you know, tried again. And then when he saw where they were going to be hung, he was like, what? He assumed that they were going to be in a place where the average person would get to see them and be exposed to them. Oh. They were going to be in the Four Seasons restaurant, right? And he's like, I don't want my pictures here. I don't right. want my paintings here. Because the For average these super, Joe can't, can't sit there, there yeah. right? So there's different stories about what he said, but he says this is a place where the richest bastards in New York will come uh. to feed and show off. And he says, I'm going to make these paintings so that they feel they're trapped in a room where all the doors and windows are bricked up. And then he goes, I hope to ruin the appetite of every son of a bitch who ever eats in that room. <laughs> So whether or not he actually said that, there's there's debate. But it was just you can see him saying that because yeah. he he said forget it and he oh he, he, he gave them back the money. So he had done the paintings. He spent two years making these paintings and then he said forget it and gave him the it. money back. Oh my god! Because he's like I don't want my artwork in there. I don't want my artwork in there. Yeah. So he, you know, he just had a, an idea. Do we know where those paintings are now? You know, I was I looking wonder. that up because I, I was trying to find out where are they right now. They're yeah. certain because they're big. They're very big. He had to rent out space to be able to create these. Mm. And so they were talking about different places around the world that they were at. I don't know where they are permanently. Yeah. I couldn't find that out because I thought that would be kind of yeah, cool. I wonder where they are. Yeah, to see. So there's a play actually called Red, hmm. which is... The story of him making these, the Four Seasons paintings. Oh, okay. And it's a 90-minute show, and it was on Broadway. And I actually saw it here in Chicago years ago at the Goodman. Cool. It was one of the best shows I've ever seen. Really? I didn't know. My sister and I go to shows, mm -hmm. and we don't, sometimes we don't know what we're going to see. We just look at a, a, a series and go, oh, let's do the Goodman, or let's do the Stephen oh, okay. Wall. And then we buy tickets. And then we don't Whatever know what we're comes, seeing. Whatever comes, you just go. You just go. We don't yeah. read reviews. So that we're just like, we're open for anything mm -hmm. right 
So that was one of the plays. And we're like, okay, this is amazing. On Broadway, it was Alfred Molina who played Rothko. Rothko. Okay. Okay. And which is funny is like my other podcast I did with about Frida Kahlo, Alfred Molina plays Diego Rivera in the oh, movie yeah. with Frida and Salma mm-hmm. Hayek. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's Such like this, a good movie. Oh, right. I want to so badly show that to my classes or mm. suggest it. And I'm like, I can't. <laughs> Cannot do it. No. But no. the play is great because they actually they're painting on the stage. They've got oh, this. They're, the guy's like stretching the canvas. He's, I mean, wow. you would have loved this play, washing the brush. I and mean, they're That's doing so cool. all of this on the stage. And it ends, you know, with him, the end of his life. But mm-hmm. it's this him talking about this, talking about Warhol, talking about all this. It's a great How it's cool. a great show. So if it ever comes back. Yeah, I'll do it. Yeah. So he really was super depressed at the end of his life. And maybe not as clear as he would have been when he came up to writing his will. But. <laughs> As far as his work, he was pretty clear about where what he wanted to happen with his paintings. Okay. Pretty strong views about, like, he would tell, like, what the lighting should be in this room, how they should be hung. He was obsessed with where the paintings were going to be. He always wanted them in one room, no other paintings in there. And how you looked at them as well, how far you should stand. Oh, wow. How many people should be in the room. Um, mm. No more than four people. In one room with in one only room his with, work. With his work. When uh, we were, I'm so sorry. No, go ahead. No, when you're we supposed were, to. Be. Um, at the Art Institute, we were talking. Uh, one of my friends has a friend that works there. And she said, oh, you guys have to go up and see, like, in a couple of the galleries in the Impressionist area, we've painted the walls this beautiful blue. Mm-hmm. And actually, uh, it's almost the blue of your house. Okay. And um, just the difference it makes when they are hung on a different yes. color wall. And it was very interesting um, that you just said, you know, mm-hmm. he had very specific. You wonder if Monet would be like, I don't want them on a blue wall. <laughs> what are y'all doing? I know. You know? I've been to exhibits yeah. too with it. Like the wall, I'm like, I'm not even looking at the painting. What color right. is that wall? I, I took a picture because we we're doing the kitchen <laughs> of the wall. And I'm like, somebody's got to find me, Benjamin Moore or whatever. <laughs> Our so. house is Hail Navy. So oh, if, you're, nice. if you need it. <laughs> you remember. Yes. That's funny. Um, yeah, so very specific and hung low. And it always drives me, I don't know if it drives you crazy, but when I go into people's homes and they have their paintings up too high. Yeah. Does it bother it, Well, it's hard to see. It's hard to enjoy. <laughs> or when they're, um, yeah, just all over the place. Yeah. I'm like, no, it's supposed to be like eye level. level. It's supposed to be eye level. <laughs> yeah. And they have it up like we're, and it's like, yeah. oh, no, that's wrong. Yeah. I just walk out. I'm leaving. <laughs> At it. I'll take my dinner and go. So he said, you know, typically these paintings are meant, you know, a large painting they're supposed Mm -hmm. to be they're kind of pompous and grandiose he's like but i want them to be human i want them to be i want people to feel intimate i want you to be close to this and i was just at the um st louis art museum which is actually a really great down there were you yeah okay so we were at the zoo and i literally snuck out and went good for you ran i'm like i'll be right back so they had (laughs) a rock right back oh did they yes and there was these teenagers sitting in there talking and one girl didn't know what she was talking about and I almost wanted to interrupt her but I was like get out like get out of here so I can look at this Rothko because there's too many people in here yeah only four people they wouldn't move them and I was like and there's a bench you know Rothko there's typically a bench for you to sit right space yeah yeah so there was it was really cool I'm like and I just stopped and I was like it's a Rothko very cool very cool I think it's so cool and and uh so funny when you bring kids to a museum and they're like no that's the real one like yeah. that Rothko painted. Okay. That, so yeah, my son, they don't get it. My son at one point said he didn't get what the big deal was because doesn't every museum have the same paintings? Mm. Isn't that so funny? So he thought like every like museum would have like, oh, there's that Picasso. It's also in Paris. It's also in New York. Mm-hmm. It's a, Mike, we just make copies. No, that's it. Yeah. Like that. There's that's only the real one, one of them. That's it. Yeah. yeah. I That to me is what's powerful. Yeah. Right. I agree. When you see something that you're like, wow, this mm-hmm. is. And Picasso stood here. And painted that. Yeah. It's cool. Yeah, he touched yeah. that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Really cool. But you can't touch it. But don't touch the alarms it. Unless cool. it's candy. Right. Then you then can, you take can it. eat them. <laughs> so um, when selling to private individuals from a studio, he would scrutinize their reaction to paintings. And if they had, they had to pass a test. And if he didn't like. I want to have dinner with Rothko. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so if he didn't like it, they would he would He would say no. Them. Yep. One of the. Um, so Jean Kennedy, who was the sister of President, sister of President Kennedy. Mm-hmm asked if she could take one or two paintings home on approval and he's like no it's not a matter of my pictures fitting in with something else no you can't have it it. wouldn't sell them to and wouldn't sell any i bet no 
when a woman bought the canvas, she's like, it's too dark. Could I get a brighter one? He just gave her her money back. He's like, no, here's your money. Forget it. It's like, is that supposed to fit in with your couch? Like, what's going to match my couch? Do you ever think about that? Do you ever think about where your art's going to hang? Like, once you put that effort into it and you create this, it's a part of you, and then people take it. It's like, where is that Mm going to be? Yeah. Yeah. And um, is it going to be there forever? Is it going to be like in six years, they don't like it anymore? Right. You know? And then, well, I saw something of mine for sale on (gasps) (laughs) on Moms of Beverly. Did you really? (laughs) And I was like, oh, look at that. That's fine. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. But it was whatever. Right. You know what I mean? Like, you have to give up that. It's it's weird because like especially a pe- a piece that you work on for a long time, mm-hmm. and then you give it up and mm-hmm. it, and then you give them ownership and right. you know you kind of lose a little bit. I know that I have I have a painting right now that I well we knocked a wall down. I don't have a place to put it anymore, right. and right. I love it. And um, I had someone I'll give you you know whatever for it, and it was a ridiculously small amount of money. And I'm like, it's not about the money. Because well, I don't need it. And then I was like, okay, <laughs> then you're not getting it. But I'm, you know, it yeah. was just, yeah, it's um, it's so personal uh-huh. when you make something. Yeah. Um, and then if you have someone, you know, we had just talked about Rothko didn't want um to be praised or didn't want to win any awards, but then when you spend so much time working on something and someone doesn't like it, mm-hmm. it is very personal. Yeah. You're like, oh my goodness, right? I, you know, I thought I did okay. Yeah. You know, and then. Have you ever walked into someone's house and they had it in a place that you were like, why Why did you put that there? Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, I can't say okay. I have, but okay. I could I could see that yeah. happening right. very easily. No, I lied. Um, you don't have to say. Okay. You don't have to say who it is. But you've had that experience. Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. And, were you kind of, and again. It's so funny. <laughs> and then have been there recently and it's no longer there. Okay. Yeah, but then I don't know where it is. Did they? <laughs> is it first sale at Moms of Beverly? And then you're like, it just went in the wrong spot. Yeah. Or and you or I, you didn't you like it, it anymore. Or yeah. yeah. Oh my gosh, that's, that's so funny. funny. Yeah. That's yeah, but really you don't funny. want your artwork hanging in the bathroom. Yeah. Okay, that's a good point. Yeah. Good to know. <laughs> don't go. Don't go in my bathroom. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Hurry, move it. <laughs> Um, all right, so he definitely waged many internal battles, especially over his fears of this next generation of artists, this new these pop painters, right? They're this they're taking this take a staging a takeover for abstractionist expressionism mm-hmm. in the early sixties, just as Rothko, they're like, Hey, we're getting rid of these cubists and we're it's like now these guys are taking over. After going to see a pop art show, Rothko did in fact refuse to shake Warhol's hand. He wouldn't even shake his hand. <laughs> Ruth um Klingman, who was Jackson Pollock's girlfriend, she tried to introduce them and he wouldn't even it wouldn't even do that. No, no. That's funny. Um so it's funny because a lot of people feel like Warhol's work was more accessible. Whereas right. Warhol's like, it's a soup can. Right. It's a pic it's Marilyn Monroe. Yeah. It's you know, um, even if it required a certain knowingness, knowingness on the part of the viewer, you could kind of be like, Ooh, I'm in on the joke, right? Yeah. Okay, the soup can, ha ha yeah. ha, you know, I'm in on the joke. Whereas this the abstract expressionism was sort of like esoteric, mm-hmm. right? Where it's like there's sort of this you have to have this uh, this deeper understanding in order to appreciate that mm-hmm. and pop art didn't require that from no. you no no and the average person could just look at it and, and get it get it uh-huh. yeah 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 absolutely um so they wanted pollock and rothko wanted this like intense personal response and then pop art is like no we're not we're not asking for it we're just yeah, asking complete this opposite. is cool mm-hmm. we're just here it's funny it's hip it's yeah. whatever it is whatever you want it's bright it's decorative yeah, so there was some interesting. They were they were talking about it was a time after Rothko had died, and someone was talking to Warhol, and actually Warhol had a, a lot of respect for Rothko. He really did respect him and his art, um, and he said, "What's what's the difference between a soup can and a Rothko?" And uh, Warhol says, "Well, Mr. Campbell signs his on the front." <laughs> so basically, there's no there's no different i mean yeah. ultimately what he's saying is we're all trying to sell this right right we're all trying to 
create a product that we're selling. This is no different from a soup can to mm-hmm. a Rothko. And Rothko didn't sign a lot of his paintings. I think he may be on the back, but he, he wouldn't didn't sign yeah. the front of them. So this is kind of like, this is Rothko's name brand. These rectangles, this is his name brand as much as a soup can is for Warhol. Warhol. So mm-hmm. kind of an interesting That is an interesting way that. to look at it. Yeah. yeah. Where again, when people judge artwork, it's what Warhol wants to make. And it's what Rothko wants mm-hmm. to make. It doesn't mean they have to be the same. Right. It's, it's, and they're both going to sell it's something, so, ultimately. Yeah. And again, it's so personal. Yeah. You know, whatever is personal to you, what mm-hmm. you think. And um, yeah, there definitely is an element of, I mean, this is, if you want to be an artist, mm-hmm. you want to sell your work. Mm-hmm. So, Do you have any artists who you're just like, you do not like at all? Who you're like, oh, I don't like this artist. I don't like their work. Um, it's not. Well, we've talked before about... The Painter of Light. I'm not a big oh, fan. That, that's episode two. <laughs> I did listen to some of it. it was, <laughs> I was agreeing totally. I'm like, yes. And my, oh my goodness, my mom had all the little oh. figurines and all the, oh, um, no, not a big fan. <laughs> okay. Um, I, I don't really have anyone that I dislike. Okay. And I think I, I just, um, like, I don't really care for him because they're, they're all the same. Mm-hmm. They're all, mm-hmm. you know, um, kitschy kind of, yeah. kind of deal. I recently have just, not that I love her artwork, her early artwork, but um, Margaret Keene. Okay. Um, Big Eyes, the movie oh, Big Eyes. Oh, yes. I that love, movie is I so I love that good. movie. Yeah. And I love her um, later artwork oh, that is more that. like um, Modigliani. Oh, really? Real long, mm-hmm. thin um, facial features, mm-hmm. and I just love them. Okay. And, um, yeah. I saw her... Modigliani at the St. Louis. Oh, did yeah. you? Yeah. Ugh. It was really Cool. That's that's my father in law is one of his famous really? favorite artists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very so cool. I really like that. And then she kind of took on some of those uh-huh. same characteristics in her later work. Oh, I never. I'll and have I really to check liked that out. it. But that whole story, I just, oh, I mean, strong woman. Uh-huh. Like I'm gonna take. I over. love the trial. Like, that's I do the too. Best scene in that movie. I do too. Right? And I I do show that one to a couple of my classes. And um, remember when I was teaching eighth grade, we brought them all in together. Uh-huh. And you could have heard a pin drop really? because towards the end they were like. Mrs. Wash, what's going to happen? I'm like, just watch. It's yes, so good. It's such a good story. And yeah, and, and they all applauded at the yeah. end. I mean, it was. It's and you so can't. Good. That's what I love about all these these podcasts I'm doing is these are such good stories. These mm-hmm. people have such interesting stories, and mm-hmm. it's like that's what I just love finding this out. And like you, you know, that's yeah. amazing what she experienced. Absolutely. And yeah, you can't make that up. I um taught art history last semester. Mm-hmm. And um, not I'm I am a lover of studio art. I mm-hmm. like to make my own art. Okay. And um, I did not find art history very exciting when I was in college. Could be the eight a.m. hour, could be the dark room. Um, but <laughs> now I just wish I had listened so much more. But I also feel like I wish we looked into like the stories okay. of the artists more than just. But I feel like we used to teach art history the way we taught history mm-hmm. which was what are the dates memorize the mm-hmm. dates memorize the facts memorize they yeah. didn't history is amazing when you yes. tell the story right mm-hmm. art history is amazing when you tell why am i memorizing facts and dates yeah no thank you no no you you ruined this you know mm-hmm. but it's like that somehow was that was that old you know pedagogical approach mm-hmm. to this these subjects and i probably would have hated it too cuz mm-hmm. i think now like why did i study this it, yeah because it was they didn't they didn't do it the best way they could have no you know? agreed so i'm 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 trying and i asked them this semester I, or this year i have it second semester okay. cuz i'm like i just want to kind of pick and choose from different artists right. find out more information yeah. about them and be able to get them to I, I looked at a, a thousand yeah. slides when I was in college. Yeah. Do I remember any of them? No. No. But if we told the story of the artist and yeah. why they that. painted or or um, what they were going through in their lives when they painted it, yeah. we remember that yeah. stuff. Yeah. So. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. So he also, in 1964, he received a really large commission from the from some uh, Houston art collectors and philanthropists mm-hmm. to create these large murals for a non-denominational chapel. I don't know if you've heard about this chapel, um, on the campus of St. Thomas Catholic University. So he generated 14 paintings while working closely with the architects to construct this meditative environment with a very dark palette. It's called the Rothko Chapel. 
Oh, wow. And um, it's since been setting for international meetings, world's great religious leaders have been there, like the Dalai Lama's been oh, wow. there. So it's sort of like a non-denominational chapel, and they have, work. they have events there. And What was the subject of? It's all, it's the rectangles. Oh, okay. Rectangles. I mean, he didn't go back to do no. any. You know, you would you'd think that it could be uh-huh. the Stations of the Cross. Yeah, or no, the, even more just con- contemplative space. So nice. it's just supposed to kind of kind of immerse yourself in this space. There's a website, so you can go on the website yeah, and look, look at it and see him. Um, so at 68, he suffered an aortic aneurysm and spent three weeks in the hospital, and that just kind of left a shadow over him. He's mm-hmm. that really kind of scared him, but he, then he started to get real resentful that his work was not being paid the respect and reverence he felt it deserved. He started to worry about his art that he was not going to have a major legacy when he was gone, and um, so then he starts working on this the black and gray series that we see. So I think, like you were saying, like there's something he had this experience, which eventually led to kind of the darker. So 25 canvases he had of the black and gray. So basically his gallery. So the Marlboro Gallery's job is to sell his work outside America. Okay. Um, but so far as his legacy went, he it was his wish that his work should be seen by the public and that groups of his paintings should stay together. So like siblings, he said. Mm-hmm. They were like siblings. They should That's be together. Funny. So in the months before he died, he had this idea of a Mark Rothko Foundation. And this would be led by Bernard Reese, who was his accountant, Theodoro Stamos, who was like a friend of his, and Morton Levine, who was a friend of his. And they would distribute the work to public galleries. So he'd oh. make these guys kind of in charge of this, the executors of this plan, the will, and but create this foundation and to support artists and, you know, education and things like that. So um, he just thought, I don't want these paintings going into individual homes of millionaires mm-hmm. and no one's ever going to see them again. I don't want that to happen. Mm-hmm. He was a very heavy drinker. Smoked several packs of cigarettes a day, five to six different types of medication. And so at 66, he committed suicide by taking an overdose of antidepressants and slashing his arms with a razor blade. Yeah. Um, morning of February 25th, 1970, his assistant Oliver Steindecker arrived at the East 69th Street studio to find him on the floor of the bathroom covered in blood. Yeah. Um, a lot of people weren't really surprised. You know, yeah. they felt that he was depressed. They just felt like he'd kind of lost his passion and inspiration. And they just said it's he's like artists before him who had this internal struggle. He submitted to the tortured artist ritual of self-annihilation. Others suggest that the artist knew he had to sign over too much to the Marlboro. So his suicide took place on the day that a representative from the gallery was going to visit the warehouse and choose paintings of his something he'd never done before he'd always said here you these are the ones you can have yeah, to approve they it. were going to come but he felt like at this point in his career he had to kind of give that up and let them choose but i had a hard time with that so his wife mel and he had separated a couple years before but his daughter kate talks about the deterioration in the parents relationships that they fought and argued about everything it was just impossible to, for them to live together they were both really heavy drinkers and when they drank they became hostile They drank whiskey, and what was a social drinking turned into a daily drinking. And they never took their anger out at me, but the quarrels were so bad, and I felt that I had to take a stand, and that was difficult for a 17-year-old girl. And she said, I just, it was then decided that he had to leave. So she said, our parents remained in close contact after he left. They talked several times a day. She said, Dad would call to make sure everything was all right. He always saw to it that my mom had whatever she needed, but he never came back home. And then six months after he dies, her mom dies. Oh, wow. And she was a lot younger than he was. She was 48 when she died. Oh, my goodness. So August 26, Rothko's second wife, Mel, dies. Her six-year-old son, Christopher, is in the next room watching cartoons. And they said it was like hypertension due to cardiovascular disease. Again, she was a very heavy drinker, so they mm-hmm. think that that contributed to that. Kate yeah. is 20 at the time. But she assumed that we're just we're going to be okay, right? Financially, right. we're going to be okay. My father's, right. you know, been Famous. successful. Mm-hmm. And, and didn't spend money. Yeah, and had his work was getting great prices, and they were blessed with all of these friends, right? Mm-hmm. So she says, or were we going to be okay? Because she said the difference between the two funerals of her parents revealed to Kate that the art world was not the bohemian extended family of her imagination. She said, at my father's funeral, people were pouring out of the woodwork. But I would have to question why they were there, because only about 10 people came to my mother's. She said she'd known these people for 25 years, and now she was like a footnote. She yeah. said it was disillusioning for me to see the superficiality of the art world, and that has never gone away. She said I'll, it will never be the idyllic place for me again. So within two years after this, she and her brother are starting this legal battle that a lot 
people were like, you are not going to win this battle. Um, for? For, for yeah. So I'll explain what that is because okay. it's very interesting. Um, even pa- friends, air quotes, mm. parents, friends, yeah. were even fewer at this point. So Kate and Christopher sued the executive of the father's estate. Okay, so that accountant, Bernard Reese, right. the gallery, Marlboro Gallery, and claimed that the, the former had conspired the latter to waste the assets of Rothko's estate and defraud them of proper share. The Roth, Rothko had not included his children in the will. But New York state law says they have to get a share of the estate. So this is what happened. Okay, this is and this is kind of there's a there's different ways that you can look at this. So the foundation was created by Rothko and his executors. So they would have this research, this education and, you know, support these paintings staying together and going to galleries. Right. The bulk of Rothko's work was supposed to go to this foundation. Okay, but after he died, this Bernard Reese sold 800 paintings to the Marlboro Gallery at a fraction of their value. So from he's in charge of these paintings. So he sells them. them to the gallery and then he splits the when the gallery resells them, he, he splits the cash. profits, okay? Mm. So according Scandal. to these executors, they said and there was a great article so Morton Levine his son wrote a really interesting article because his dad was, you know, part of this trial and was basically, you know, hung out to dry and yeah. um he has a totally different take than kate rothko does so they're saying wait a second we were under obligation that we had to create this foundation we mm-hmm. had to financially support and create a foundation they how are we supposed to do that we had to sell we had to sell these paintings to create that we had a liquid you know get liquid assets right. for the foundation so that we can then fulfill your father's mission. So 800 paintings is, is not all of his paintings. There's more. Mm-hmm. Um, and the bulk of that estate would be the, th- that would be the wisest thing to do is to sell these right away. He's popular. Who's to say right. in a year and, or two. Yeah. So and insuring these paintings, that would be astronomical. Like we couldn't right. afford to do that. So we couldn't keep all these paintings. Right. So according to David, and that was his take. That was what, these executors were saying mm-hmm. okay so david levine whose dad was one of these guys said is the, the only executor without a conflict of interest so he didn't work with the gallery he didn't profit from this he decided to get his own counsel separate from those other executors and to join rothko's children and say i'm, I'm with you i, I support oh. you whatever you know what you want and he said you they should not be selling anything else they should stop selling and so he was supporting their right to inherit to inherit this mm-hmm. he said throughout though that Neither Reese or Stamos was, was trying to defraud them. He said they were not trying to defraud. It was not their intention. It was not their intent. And so, but it, it was kind of bad because people, either way, he couldn't win. So you had the people who were going after him because he was an executor. Yeah. And then he's, you know, he's he's just kind of in the middle here. So basically the trial hinged on this question, which was, was Mark Rothko an artistic genius? If he was this great American master, then the executors were wrong to sell his paintings so cheaply that that was wrong they should not have done that if he's this great american master but if he's just another successful painting painter whose paintings might the value might decline right up people would forget about him then they acted prudently so how are they supposed to know i was just going to say that at that point nobody knew what but that was his that's what he wanted yes they were saying because so many of these paintings went to individual homes that wasn't what he wanted but they're like we can't insure 800 paintings right. we can't and we have to sell this to do you know to do his work and to build Which this foundation what they were hired for yeah um, and what was the foundation for what was so the... it was to be able to sh- have these paintings you know again like have money keep to them together keep them together have them travel you know in different okay. galleries things like that okay uh, and education as well education and support for young artists and, okay so if the but then it's like what were Rothko's intentions, right? So if he wanted his paintings kept in groups, exhibited in museums, then they cheated the public right. by selling by them selling to individual them. people and absorbing them into private collections. But if he didn't care what happened and just wanted to make grants to artists, then they what they did was fine. So it's there it's complicated, right? right. It's a complicated well, and both situation. Both of them are very valid points. Yeah. Right? It's interesting because then David Levine says, um, Rothko was by all accounts a terrible parent who alienated his teenage daughter to such an extent that she told him she hated his paintings. And she did. She said, I hate, I hate these. I don't want these. So he responded as any narcissistic, alcoholic, monomaniacal, abstract expressionist would, and he left the paintings in the hands of his friends and didn't leave her any. Once he's dead, she's sorry, and she wants to take it all back. 
she was young, right? She right. was like, I want no part of this. But by now the paintings are with others who have their own interests, their own understanding of his priorities, and they are villainized and they lose. And they were told they could buy them, so they did. Mm -hmm. They're yeah. not, yeah. David's mother, so this guy again, this the dad was part of the suit, was a great friend of Rothko's. She went every day to the studio. She visited him every single day in the studio. When he was found dead, the assistant called her. Oh, wow. And she went to identify the body. She planned his funeral. She actually took in their son, the six-year-old. The young one. Yeah, yeah, took him in for a while. So this case goes on for years. It's seven years before they would even have an a Rothko of their own. Seven years this trial went on. So she says that she had this conviction that this was what I had to do because I knew how upset my father would have been by what was going on. So she simply wanted to make sure that her father's wishes became a reality. To everyone's amazement, they won. Wow. Kate and Christopher won. A crushing verdict, they said. The executors were thrown out for improvidence and waste verging on gross negligence. Recent Stamos were found to have been in conflict of interest as executors. All the contracts between the Marlboro and the Rothko estate were declared void. The Rothko Foundation then donated the rest of the works to museums in the United States and abroad. Stamos actually had to give up his house to the Rothkos because he didn't have enough he money. Pay him. And Christopher ended up living in the house. Oh, my goodness. So... The court did not rule on the paintings that were already sold. They said, we can't get can't those back. Can't do anything, yeah. Um, and she said, you know, they asked her, like, well, is there any painting that you wish really you like. had? And she says, there was one um, that homage to Matisse from 1954. She said, it's the only painting I would really like to have. I grew up with it. She said, I think it's in a vault somewhere. And then it came up for auction. So in 2005, this painting well, they found it. was up for auction. Oh, Guess how much? Oh, Lord. $22.4 Oh, my no wonder she wanted that. No right? doubt. No doubt. <laughs> 20 she didn't want painting number 72. <laughs> All right. Wow. So um, she ends up being a research pathologist. She has a PhD. She lives with her husband, daughter in Washington. In the 70s, she was like the point person when the galleries were putting together shows of her okay. father's work. Um, but now it's mostly Christopher. Okay. Does that. He's did in they, charge. Did they keep his passion for having them together? And how did they know which ones he wanted to keep together. Yeah, so they had, the, he was, was very already, clear about okay. ones that were done together and series pieces that were done together, yeah. So he is, oh, and actually, this is for you. No way. This is Mark Rothko by Christopher Rothko. Oh my goodness. And so there's, they've got pictures of a lot of the paintings in there, so those are some of the early ones. And it's, I don't know how good it is. There's some interesting things in there, but it's just kind of fun to get his take on his father's paintings. And how nice of you. Oh, thank no, you. Thank, that's, I just want you to. Oh, I'm excited. Oh. Have a. Stack, yes. Stack, stack, stack. Crossed out, crossed out, crossed out. Yeah. So thank he's you. now in charge of the estate. He does a lot with that. The chapel, the Rothko Chapel. And I'd like to go home and look at that. Too. I know. Yeah. It's mm -hmm. really cool. It's a cool space. There's a, like I said, a website and there's videos that you can okay. see. Um, so they, someone, there was a. Like I was reading too, not everyone loves Rothko, right? So someone was commenting the fact that you ever notice when there's a Rothko, there's a bench. He, how come Rothko gets a bench? You know, it was really kind of cute. And they were saying he's amused by, you know, all these artists. And then he's like, there's four Rothkos, there's two benches and a sign that says only four people at a time to maintain the solemnity of the experience. And he's like, oh, we mustn't have any laughter by these Rothkos. Um, the problem is you. If you're not transported to the beyond while looking at them, uh, you know, that's you're your that's your you're problem. Not, yeah. Right. So another critic says that if Rothko hadn't committed suicide, how much of his legend is tied up in his suffering, his embodiment and the tortured artist archetype? How much would we care about his paintings? But he says, if you saw this exhibition and privately wondered whether you're missing something or personally lacking the depth because you didn't feel a thing looking at those pictures, well, you're not alone. Oh, my gosh. And who said this that? This is an art critic. Oh, yeah, my so goodness. These are some Brutal. Yeah, kind of brutal, yeah. right? But then there's another art critic who's had something kind of interesting. And he's like, can anything be further away from the razzle-dazzle of contemporary art, the frantic hustle of now? This isn't about now. This is about forever. This is a place where you come to sit in the low light and feel the eons rolling by, to be taken towards the gates that open onto the thresholds of eternity, to feel the poignancy of our comings and our goings, our entrances and our exits, our births and our deaths, womb, tomb, and everything in between. Can art ever be more complete or more powerful? I don't think so. Wow. So not everyone thinks it's <laughs> And then there's an audio tour at the Museum of Fine Arts in Houston, and the director uh, in this audio tour says, I think the simplicity of Rothko's compositions often begs the question, is it the environment? The fact that we are the rarefied precinct of a museum or the Rothko Chapel that adds meaning to these works. 
one could ask oneself, yeah, I think legitimately if you were to take one of these paintings and put it on a truck and put it outside the museum door, would it still hold up? Would it still be compelling? And to me, it's a perfectly valid question. The context really matters. But I think there's something inherent and integral to Rothko's work that holds our attention, that makes them compelling, that has us coming back always for more. It's clear to me that Rothko himself didn't always understand what he was doing. But whether or not you love his paintings, it's impossible to doubt the sincerity of the struggle to make them, to express the world as he saw it. Those luminous pictures have an authenticity, a lack of cynicism that seems to belong to a distant time. And today, Mark Rothko is viewed as one of the leading American artists in the world of abstractionist expressionism. That was, I, so I that so enjoyed, <laughs> I so enjoyed learning about yeah. him more. Like I knew who he was, I would recognize one of his pieces, but yeah. um, that is just so interesting to learn more about him because it's so, so much deeper than when, even if you just walked by one, right? even if you sat on the bench. You know, with three other people <laughs> with three other people. And then when and one what? more came in, get you up, left, get up and go. Yeah. Easy. And I think I think seeing that play, because I didn't know much about Rothko until mm -hmm. I saw that play. And I was like, there, what is this is there's a story. Here. Yeah, there's, there's a great going story. on. And I like I said that him being kind of transitioning from we're the new guard. Now this pop stuff comes in. And I just mm -hmm. thought that was a great story. I thought there was a lot there. And I thought you'd be interested yeah. in talking about that because of your background and your career. I, and I really did enjoy it. I enjoyed it very much. Good. Now I'm curious. Now I want to go learn more. Well, that's mm -hmm. the point, right? So now yeah. you've got a little book you can look at and just, I kind of went through and read just random chapters and yeah. didn't really read the thing from beginning to end. Cause like I said, if you, it might be good if you're having trouble sleeping, <laughs> <laughs> but that might be a good one. Like you said, just to pick up a little here and there, yeah, just kind of just learn a snippet here and there. And to have his yeah. son have written it. That's what I thought yeah. was kind of cool. And that uh, was his younger one? Yes. So okay. he was six when he passed away. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So then he continued on mm -hmm. to learn more about his work, too. He had to have because yeah, six. He said, I didn't have a ton of memories yeah. with my dad. And we didn't talk about art. It wasn't like mm -hmm. we had these conversations. So I had to kind of research him myself as well. Yeah. So, And his mom, too, having passed away so yeah. soon. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So that's it, Sandy. That's well, thank Mark you. Oh, thank you. Thank you for doing this. My I know pleasure. you're so busy and um, I appreciate you coming. Busy. I know, not, but yeah. I just, like I said, I get to sit with you in my basement and chat and I'm so happy to do so that. So we have to do this next week too? Yes. Every week. Eric will be like, where are you going? Oh, oh. wow, that podcast. So you know Woo. what? Yeah, now it's a thing yeah. and Nancy needs me yep. every week. <laughs> <laughs> we should meet at Porta Color. <laughs> oh my gosh. That sounds great. Yeah, we need to have our meeting. Like we need to have the research meeting first yes. and then yeah. Plan. I love it. All right. So that is it. Thank you everyone for listening. Um if you want more drama, you can go to my website, www.thesodramaticpodcast.com. There's links to all the things we're talking about in this episode. So anything we mention, you'll find a link to that. Be sure to go on iTunes and Spotify to rate, subscribe, and review, please. And remember that it's okay to be so dramatic.